Hello and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. Tony Kavanagh is one of Australia's most successful television producers, screenwriters and script editors. He is also the author of the highly acclaimed Darian Richards series of books. His latest work is Blood River, a standalone thriller featuring the hunt, catch and conviction of an alleged serial killer, questioning what happens when they're due for release 19 years later. Heavily influenced by real-life events, including the trial of Lindy Chamberlain, Tony is extremely candid about what drove him to tell this story. Now, a quick word of warning, there is some seriously colourful swearing in the second half of our conversation. Hello, Tony. Thank you for joining me. And thanks for having me. It's fantastic to be here. I really appreciate it. Tony, Blood River, for a story about serial killers, seems to be heavily informed by real-life events and real-life people. One of the more interesting characters seems to be based on an extremely interesting individual who you met in Thailand, a fellow oh. who used to run with the Cray brothers. Now, the character is Billy Waterson, former London East End gangster turned police officer. But tell me about the real Billy W. How do you know he, worked, he ran with the Cray brothers? Well, I understand he may have run with the crowd. How do you know? I'm just asking because there are certain things that I will and won't say. So I'm just curious to know. You obviously know who he is. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I'm simply, simply through research and, and other statements that have been made over the many years to press. When you were working in Thailand, working on a horror film or trying to get a horror film up, it was mentioned that at the time you were talking to a fellow who had run <laughs> perhaps with the Cray brothers and putting two and two together many years later. He appears to be the one. I was not prepared for someone who had done so much research. <laughs> okay, I should have been. Brilliant. Well, yeah, I did. It was the strangest experience. I was approached by this person who's kind of like, I guess, a go-between. And she said to me, I know this guy and he used to be in Queensland and he got involved with the Fitzgerald Inquiry, spent a little bit of time in jail and he's now in Thailand. He's got the most extraordinary life, an incredible life. And I hear this quite a lot as a screenwriter and producer. A lot of people, because I did Day of the Roses and the Lindy Chamberlain through my eyes, and so I have a reputation in the TV world in this country in particular as telling true life stories, which I love doing. So I would, you know, I'm always sceptical when people say, I know this person who's got the most incredible story, but he rang me and indeed, I remember walking around the the wooden floor of my house in Southport, listening to him as he talked to me with this extraordinary accent and his extraordinary Cockney slang. And after about 20 minutes, I thought to myself, I've just heard two of the most incredible stories I couldn't even imagine in the space of a 20-minute phone call. So we agreed that I would go over and spend some time putting together his story, which I did. And that was an experience. It was an R-rated experience because he owned a girly bar, and so we and we were up on the third floor of the girly bar building, and it was freezing cold, absolutely freezing cold. And then we do about ten hours of research, and then I was exhausted, so we go downstairs to have a beer, and he's sitting in the girly bar, staring at you know twelve naked Thai girls dancing and gyrating on stage, and thinking to myself. I just don't know what weird universe I've stumbled into. This is just extraordinary. You know, I'm talking to this guy about the 1940s and 50s and 60s and 
English experiences and here I am in Patea of all places, which is just odd. So Billy is drawn from him a little bit, a little bit, and Billy's also drawn from my experiences with a lot of police officers. And I met my first walking, talking, three-dimensional police officer back in the 70s when I worked on Homicide and Divi 4 and then moved on to a lot of other crime shows. And how have they influenced your work? Um, because you've written about cops for most of yeah. your career in one form or another in TV and yeah. certainly in the Darren Richards series, which are the four books before this one. How, how does their, their life experience inform your writing? In particular with the Darian books, because I'd worked very closely with a number of homicide detectives, very closely, and an ex-FBI profiler in a film that I did about 10 years ago called I Am You. Basically, again, another true story about a 15-year-old girl who went missing in Melbourne and it was revealed that her 19-year-old female ex-babysitter had in fact stalked her and murdered her. That's In Her Skin, also yeah. released under that title, isn't exactly. it? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So based on a great book called Perfect Victim, published by Penguin. And in the making of that film, and indeed in the research of that film, I came to get to know very closely uh, a chap called Lucio Rovers, who is ex-head of Homicide, and he's been there for many, many years. He's now no longer with Victoria Police, but he and I have, been, have maintained a very close relationship. And indeed with Blood River, as with all the books, when I first came up with the idea, I usually fly down to Melbourne and stay in sort of like some cheap, dingy hotel and hang out with Lucio and a couple of my other colleagues who are ex-homicide down there and just put forward the premise. So this is what I want to write about. What would you do? What would you, how, it's like a hypothetical. You know, I'm Jeffrey Robertson. And put the, I'm not, I'm not winning that smart, guys. It's <laughs> an extraordinary 80s callback there. Uh, um, so both Lucio and the other chap, Claude Minasini, who is the ex-FBI trained profiler, were really instrumental in the creation of the Darian character and in the, in the writing of In Blood River with the character of Billy, who's an older cop and has this English background. I drew a lot from Lucio. So there's a passage in the book where, the, where from Lara's point of view, Lara's the youngest police officer in homicide in 1999 and Billy's the oldest and there are, there's a moment where she talks about writing in triplicate or or whatever and using carbon paper and that's direct from Lucio where I just asked him something and he just chatted to me about you know the, the phrase Lucio's phrase the accursed carbon paper particularly when you put it and I remember this as a kid when you put it in the wrong way and you type everything you pull it out and think what it's all blank I'm like god no I've got to go back and start again so uh so those guys really influenced me. And aside from that, it, the work I did on the... T well, I spent a lot of work with, with Northern Territory police officers for Through My Eyes, but that was a very different world because that's the Territory. And, you know, they kind of fitted her up. Well, they didn't kind of fit her up. They did fit her up. Yeah, and I'd, I'd like to come back to that yeah. a little bit further on because there are connections, obviously, to Lindy Chamberlain's story. Very much so. I did channel... The, I studied River. Lindy's journey for two years we'll come back to that when looking at some of these characters i'd like to stay also with your two leads so of course there's billy but then there's lara ocean yep. and lara ocean is an australian chinese police officer for, starts off and we should say the book is set in two different eras which is 1999 and then 20 years later so 
Let's talk about Lara. When I first arrived, I have long answers sometimes. When I first arrived in Brisbane to make the TV series Fire, which was meant to be made in Melbourne, but for a whole bunch of reasons, driven by the network, we end up in Brisbane. And we went to meet with the, the fire commissioner, and he very proudly said to us, there were no shielders in the Queensland Fire Service, and as far as he's concerned, there were never going to be any fucking shielders, ever. And it's haunted me from the... I knew Queensland was very different from Victoria. It's not anymore like that, thank God. But that always really informed my books and my writing in the Darian stories, but in particular in this story, that it was very difficult for a woman to break into... Still is, still is, but back then, even harder. And I know for a fact, having done the fire research in Victoria, they had the same attitude, and the, they actually allowed female firefighters in because the government was about to legislate and force them. And so they thought, well, we better... And I don't know if that was the case in Queensland. It probably was. So Lara's backstory, I guess, because her mother was also a police officer in Hong Kong, and as Lara reveals at one point in the book, Mum tried to join the Queensland Police Force, but their, their answer back to her, which kind of haunts her, her journey through the book, is we don't hire chinks. And I was putting that together, thinking about her, and yeah, I had been to China. I started off, I was in Thailand, not with this guy doing the research. I actually ended up working on a film called The Chain, which with um, a Bangkok-based company, which is a horror film, which is a massive genre over there, and they make the best horror films probably in the world, or to rival Japanese ones in particular. So I then moved across to China and started spending a lot of time there and started to develop. The process was I'd gone over to Thailand to produce an American film to be shot in Thailand. It all fell through because the money was dodgy. And I'd formed a company with these guys who had an existing, I'd joined their company. And they're all depressed. I've been in that situation so many times before. I just said to them, look, guys, let's just get over it and move on. We can't sort of sit around wallowing in sort of like, you know, doom and gloom. Let's just figure out what to do next. And so we decided we'd do a low-budget Thai horror film. I thought, okay, well, we'll shoot this entire. I'll go to the premiere. I won't understand a word of it. I'll write the outline and then I'll write the script in English. I'll get it translated. And then I'll hand it over to the Thai writer-director. As it happened, the Thai writer-director, or the Thai director, Tanit Chitnikul, who's there, Steven Spielberg, said to me, you keep writing. You keep writing in English. I'm understanding it. The translation is fine. And I'll just shoot it in Thai. And I thought, okay, well, if this is working, and it was, and it will, because we'll make this film, I've applied that same model to China and Mandarin. Now, I, ha I hasten to add that the translation from Mandarin to English or vice versa is a lot more complicated because in every English sentence you've got three meanings. Yeah, so th that's what I was going to ask you is yeah. that Mandarin is extremely difficult when translating from English. Yeah. They will not have phrases and terms no. for words that we use, let alone colloquialisms or, or meanings. And, and a word in Mandarin can mean three different things. Yeah. So how does that work in a script? So the first part of that answer is that you've really got to understand the culture. 
Now, you know, I'm a 62-year-old white guy who's living in Sydney. I can go to China. I can sit and talk with my Chinese friends. I can try and learn Mandarin. I can observe. That will get me only so far. Okay, now I'm going to read a bunch of books. And I've probably read about 60 or 70 or 80 books. And I reference Han Yin in her five-part autobiography in Blood River, which was a massive influence on me. And who am I? Am I a half-European? Because her mum was Flemish and her dad was Chinese. So I can only go so far at that point then. And I experienced this in the script which I finished writing on the weekend, which is about a Chinese beauty pageant. I experienced this when I first wrote it and I sent it across and it had a great response, but I kept getting this phrase, it's not Chinese enough. And I thought, okay, there's, I don't fully, I can't answer that. I don't really know where to go with that, except to grab somebody who, can, who is fluent in both and explain to them, this is what I want to do. This is my intention. With, and it's no different from what I did when I was a story editor working on Flying Doctors, when I had direct, when, in fact, even before then, when I was working on Sullivan's, there was a weird thing where you'd write, you'd spend all this time sitting around a plotting table, you'd plot out a story, you'd then do the outline, then the scene breakdown would come in and the first draft would come in, then the second draft would come in. You spent like maybe three months working on a script, you hand it over to a director and you'd say to the director, do you understand what this script is about? You understand the intent of every scene, don't you? Yeah, yeah of course I do, absolutely. Well, they lied, all of them, except one. And I've worked with over 100 directors. And after a little while, I was watching Rush and hang on, even though he doesn't speak in the scene, it's all about him. The camera should have been on about him because he's about to pull a gun out and shoot someone. But where is he? <sighs> so what I ended up doing as a story producer way back on Flying Doctors and Carson's Law is I'd sit the director down and say, I'm going to take you through this script sentence by sentence by sentence and explain the intent. This is not to say that you I'm being dictatorial because all I want you is to understand what we have been doing in the story department, in the script department for all this period of time. And if you want to change it, great, but let's all work from a, from a place of understanding what's on the page. So it's the same thing when it comes to working in Mandarin, and indeed when I was working in Thai. It's a little easier with the, in, with the Thai thing, <laughs> he, said, he said easily. But, <laughs> um, but with, the, with the Mandarin speaking projects, I am working very, or we are working very closely. And in fact, I've got a new film company now. Uh, there's myself and three young uh, women, and they're all Chinese. So that kind of helps a lot as well. And in that script, I employed an ex-student of mine from Griffith who's fully Chinese and man, she said, look, you know, they wouldn't kiss, they don't do that, they'll hug. No, you wouldn't say that, that's not gonna happen. That's just the you know, tip of the iceberg type of stuff. So it all comes down to, and it's no different in, in the film and TV world, is that understanding collaboration, putting the ego at the door, you know, thinking, okay, what's best for, the scene for the movie and you know working on that basis so was that attractive to you to introduce a new culture into your books because i mean lara ocean is quite a different character to anyone you've written previously i didn't set out to write lara as um being part chinese she's based on a i've i thank a number of unnamed um young chinese women there's about six of them whose experiences have all sort of coalesced into Lara, one in particular, and um, yeah, I didn't set out to write her as Chinese, just a moment where she just kind of popped up to me and said, I'm going to be half Chinese. So I said before, I'd been heavily influenced by the Han Siyun um, stories. So the book, 
the book kind of did a bit of a U-turn, well not a U-turn, but it did a swift turn where I thought I'm going to embrace all of this and I find that kind of very interesting to get into that world and I love working in the crime genre, I've said this many times before but it's true, because in crime as a writer, as a storyteller, you're working within a very easy, accessible framework. There's a baddie, they're doing bad shit. There's a goodie, she or he, they're out to stop the baddie. And the baddie's going to do, keep doing bad shit and the goodie's going to try and get them. Once you've got that framework happening, then you can kind of wander off, which is what I did in Blood River, because it, it, you know people will say that the murders are gruesome and all that sort of stuff, and they are based on a couple of true life story things. But at the end of the day, I wasn't really interested in that. And I'm, I, as a writer, I mean, who wants to watch that sort of stuff? You know, that's not what's memorable. Well, Blood River seems to break away very specifically from the Darren Richards series yeah. as well because it isn't so much about the murders and the murderer, why they're doing it. This is really about the conviction of the alleged murderer, yeah. their life in prison and what it really means for when life is not life, life is 20 years. And that's why it also comes back to your previous work, which it seems to be heavily influenced by the experience of the killer, well, the murderer, Carolyn Reed Robertson, who was featured in In Her Skin. That was the story of she was 19, yeah. she killed a young girl of 15 who yeah. she previously babysat. Yeah. She was put away for life. Life yeah. was 20 years and she was due she for release. That's right. Yeah. Due for release around 2013, of which yeah. you yourself commented publicly to the Bulletin. And did even, I? And, yeah. I guess I did. <laughs> <laughs> and, and even the family did as well to push for, for her very, to be extended. Yeah, yeah. And interestingly enough, two years later, when she was released in 2015, the family took a different approach and said, We now want her left alone and we don't want her to be infringed upon by the media and vigilantes. And a lot of that seems to come through in the the through line that you're following for, for Jen, um, the, the, the killer in this book. Yeah, just going just on that point, Elizabeth Barber, who is the mum who wrote co-wrote Perfect Victim, whose daughter Rachel was, I get a bit teary when I talk about this, was killed. She's an extraordinary woman, and she, even though she wanted Caroline to stay behind bars and fought against that first parole, she forgave her. And when we made that film, which was two thousand and eight or something, I think two thousand seven, seven, eight. We spent a lot of time with the barbers. You know, the very first thing when you do a real life story is you've got to go and get the imprimatur of the family and say, yeah, this is what we want to do, what do you want out of it? And are you happy for us to be doing it? All that sort of stuff. And she forgave Caroline. She's, you know, a very, far more than I, a very religious, forgiving person. And so that's an interesting story. Um, with, back to this and to Jen, who's a 17 year old girl who's actually 18 when she goes down for life. And that's what I really want to call the book, Life Is Not Life, because I was intrigued by, I guess, what I call the Catch-22 conundrum that's at the heart of the book, which is why I wrote the book in the first place, is that a person goes down for murder, her QC, she gets life, her Q, QC says to her, she's going, you know, off to jail, hey, look, it's okay, life is not life, well, it's not okay, but, you know, life is not life, you'll be out for parole in 15 to 17 years, and you'll be out. And when she gets to jail, and this is... This is the key part that intrigued me, which is why I wrote the book. She goes to jail and she tells everybody who will listen and everybody who won't, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. And when she gets to the parole board after the first, at the first parole meeting after 15 years, I'm innocent. I say, hey, look, listen, if you want to get out, 
the very first step along the journey is to admit you're guilty. Because if you don't admit you're guilty, then we can't get to the next steps, which are, you know, I want forgiveness, I want to atone, I won't do it again. If you keep, you were found guilty, you're guilty. I'm innocent. Well, if you keep saying you're innocent, it's like Yossarian. It's not Yossarian, I think, who's the one who gets trapped. But whoever that character is in the Joseph Heller book who wants to get out. But, you know, if I can't remember what the conundrum was, exactly how it was played out in Cash Between Two. Was it Yossarian? Yeah, it was Yossarian, which was the case of um, I'm pleading that I'm, I'm insane. But if you plead you're insane... You are sane. You're sane. Yes, because you've recognised how insane the war is. I can't wait to see the George Clooney one. That's right. In the weekend. <laughs> Um, so I was in, and so finally, after 17 years, she kind of hears the burst and decides, well, I better be guilty then. And we don't know necessarily if she's guilty or innocent, and she may or may not be, but she might have gone through the whole court case at the age of 18, and as she describes, like completely not listening to a thing, thinking, what alternative universe? Thank you, Lewis Carroll who I refer to <laughs> reference a few times. What happened to me? And so she starts to study you know, the crimes and going, I was really intrigued by that, that you know, she finally, after I think the third or the fourth attempt says, look, I'm really sorry for having told you I'm innocent. I'm not, I'm really guilty. I'm really guilty and I know exactly why I did it. And yeah, I, I found that really interesting well it's an interesting turn in the sense that you've said i think somewhere in the book and also previously when talking about this before its release that she has to accept being a killer and it does change the reader's point of view as to whether well hang on is she actually accepting what she's done or is she playing the game yeah so it keeps that element of doubt going even though you you know you've painted a picture that perhaps she isn't the killer Look, it's a really interesting, again, use my favourite word of the week, conundrum, <laughs> for a writer, where you're thinking, how long do I sustain this before it gets contrived? And I remember when Graham Hartley and I wrote a script called Father back in 86, 7, 8 or whatever, it was made in 89, with the majestically wonderful, brilliant Max von Sydow, who won an AFI award, and the wonderful Carol Drinkwater and Julia Blake. And as we were writing that, the whole premise of that was that this woman played by Julia Blake turns up in Melbourne and says to Carol's character, your father is a killer. He walked into our village in Lithuania. He shot everybody with the Einsatzgruppen. He, he put a gun to the temple of my head. He pulled the trigger. I woke up in a pit of bodies, our village, and I've been searching for him ever since. And it's him. It's your father. And Carol says, well, no, it's not because he's my father. And, you know, my father, you look at him. He's a gorgeous grandfather. And... We were really interested in the blind loyalty of the son or daughter, in this case the daughter, and we just didn't actually give a rat's ass about whether or not he was guilty or not. We just didn't think that was important. As it ha and it was never in our minds as we were writing that, like we're writing a thriller, we're writing a did he or did he not. It never once occurred to us that that was an issue. Or we, it just so happened in the writing process, we didn't reveal it until the very end. But we just figured, oh, well, everyone's going to get it. Obviously, he's fucking guilty because otherwise there wouldn't be a bloody movie. So, of course. But when the film came out, I started to realise, there's a lot of things I started to realise about the script, actually, <laughs> that I hadn't thought of when we were writing it, um, which were pointed out to us in particular by Max. But 
just nod and say, yeah, yeah, we did think about that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's yeah, yeah. It's every Ab- good idea. Absolutely, was, was yes, Max. I'm glad you picked that out. I should pick that up, actually. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I am clever. Thanks. Um, fuck. What, did you know about that? No. Okay, shh, don't tell him anything. Yes, nod and walk away. Nod, nod and, walk, and away. walk away. So in the writing of this, it was the same thing. What... Do I really care if the, if the reader, I was going to say the audience, but the reader knows if she's innocent? Yeah, of course, I'm running a crime thriller, so we, I guess we need to maintain that, you know, and keep that going and whatever. But that's never was my intention. And going back to what I was saying much earlier, the framework of crime, it's great because I, I inhabit a space that I feel comfortable in and with my background of being a story editor and a script editor and working on the Sullivans, you know, two hours a week putting those stories together and doing that for decades, I feel confident and comfortable in the structure, the structural space. I know instinctively, or I hope I do, and I don't want to sound like a dickhead, but I kind of instinctively get when we need to move and change tack or POV or when we've had enough of this character or when we need to get, as Chandler does, and I've used, you know, to my regret, that moment where you don't know where to go, so just have the guy walk through the door and bang, someone clobbers him on the head and he wakes up in another place. Thanks, Raymond Chandler. So with that feeling comfortable in that space, it allowed me in Blood River to float off into this world of Hansi Yin and what is my background and all of that type of stuff. And there's a lot, you know, and I was, I was really happy with that. There's a lot in the book, which is not what you'd necessarily say is crime. You know, there's a lot of stuff about Billy growing up and the doodlebugs and a lot about Lara and her backstory, you know, where she's been sort of like subjugated by these two monsters um, as a teenage kid growing up and had the tattoos and all that past. So, yeah, it's, uh, it was an interesting journey. You introduced the idea of the role that the media play in criminal convictions. And certainly in Blood River, you look at the fact that the the media is so keen to convict someone before a court does, let alone keep them in prison once they've been convicted. Why does that... Is that that taking us back to Lindy Chamberlain? It soon will. (laughs) I I like how you you predicted where I'm going. The problem of talking to storytellers is they always know where you're going. They can see it coming. (laughs) We will get that. So, yes, yes, obviously... um, the influence seems quite obvious because you mentioned the case of Lindy Chamberlain and for those who don't know, Lindy was convicted originally of the murder of her child, Azaria, um, when she had come out and said publicly that it had been taken by a dingo and the press onslaught was immense and Australia had never seen anything like it before. No, it was full on. I don't know where to start with Lindy but she was, you know, she was, no one... I was going to say no one believed that a dingo could do it, but in fact everybody at Uluru knew because on the night it, the, it just went right around. It's happened because leading up to the event, and we put this into our miniseries, it was common, not, it was public, on the public record that there'd been like seven or eight attacks, in particular on a four-year-old girl who's sitting in the car while her mum and dad are putting up a tent at the back of the car and she's got the door open going vroom, vroom, vroom with the, with the um, steering wheel and a dingo jumps up, grabs her by the head and starts to drag her away. She's 30 feet away before her dad uh, spots the dingo. Same dingo, by the way, and that took Azaria. And all of these stories are out there in the, in the public arena and in particular had been brought before the first coroner and Denny Barrett, but he made the mistake of the press. He made the mistake of of televising live, which just enraged and inflamed 
the Territorian police, and in particular that gung-ho bunch of cowboy politicians, all of whom are the age of under 40, who just went for her, absolutely went for her. But she, you know, she was young, she was pretty, Joanna Lees, there are so many examples. Amanda Knox, we've got, you know, a, and the automatic default, the automatic default when you've got a young, pretty woman is that, you know, she fucking did it. She's a killer. You know, we want to see her behind bars. It's just, it's just terrific. And there's a lot, you know, as I've referenced in the book, is what the one point where I thought, from Lara's point of view, and I thought, you know, I'm starting to sound a little bit like a textbook here. And I was referencing a great book I read called Why Women Kill. And she, this lady, I can't remember the name of the author, she talked about the, the waves of feminism and how it was the first wave of feminism, the second and third, and now we're in the fourth. With every one of those waves of feminism, there comes this kickback from guys. And I remember writing the one thing in the, is it the second wave, Anita Hill was the third, I think, the second wave of feminism in the 70s, Yes, in the 70s, after the female eunuch, where they, I quoted one of the um, American cops saying, they want equality, we'll give them fucking equality. And what he meant by that was, we'll fill the jails up with the fucking bitches. And so I was intrigued by, that's always stayed with me. And it was so pronounced, it was so pronounced in the, in the Lindy trial, in that whole journey, that whole journey. It was just, you know, if she was, well, if she was a guy, it would never have happened. When telling these very personal, real-life stories, you've said previously that you make a pledge to the families. Yeah, sure. What is that pledge? So what happens is that if we come across a true-life story and I come across a lot that I feel deeply um, uh, attracted to because someone said to me a long time ago, if you've got the gift of being able to tell a story, you know, that's a gift, you know, and you've got the ability to explore the human condition. I don't fuck with that. You know, I... I love it that people enjoy superhero movies and go see the Avengers. It's great. They've got a place. But, you know, it's just so not me. It's so not me. It's, you know, it's anathema to me. So for me, it's, you know, it's deeply personal. When I come across a story, I'll reach out to that person. As it happened, Lindy came to us and we met with her in Harry M. Miller's office. And I became deeply, not deeply, I became quite emotional and attached to her and her story. I thought I knew it, but you know, in the space of five minutes I realised I didn't. So what I do is that I say to whoever this person is, and I've done a lot more that have been on the screen because there have been a lot of um, scripts and outlines that have been written which for whatever reasons never made it to the screen. So I say to the person, "What?" I take creative control, first thing I say, I'm in charge, so the buck stops with me but you need to tell me what you... I'm going to tell you why I want to do it. You need to tell me what you want from it. So I'm doing that at the moment. I'm working on a big... It's going to be an eight-part. It's now it's a five-part, massive, sprawling TV series set in the Philippines in the Second World War about the resistance movement, the Hucks, who fought against the Japanese and then they were misinterpreted by the Americans as being communists. Well, they had communist leanings, but they, you know, they weren't that. They just wanted land reform, which you know, was an issue and still is in the Philippines. And I've said to the woman who wrote the dissertation, which became a book published by the University of Wisconsin, about the Hark Rebellion, she said to me, why are you doing this? And I said, I'll tell you exactly why I'm doing it. I'm doing this because you've written this book about these women who were up in the Sierra Madre Mountains and that they, you know, up until this time when the rebellion came, they'd been, not subjugated, wrong word, but nonetheless, they'd been 
not focused upon and this allowed them to grow and to become equal and to become warriors. They were called Amazons. And so I want to, they've been forgotten in time and I want to cherish that and bring them back to life. And with Rachel Barber, you know, we wanted to remember her name. And it's another one of the phrases that constantly appears in my books at the end of Kingdom of the Strong, remember my name. So I say to them, what do you want? Because I need, I don't want to, I don't want to be on the first day of principal photography and you're unhappy and you say to me, oh, but I wanted this from the show. And me to think, well, it would have been better if you told me that four years ago. Because we've got to be spiritually, and I use that word absolutely. I'm not a religious guy, but it is a spiritual thing. I use, it, we need to be spiritually in tune with each other, knowing why we're here. And when I talk to film students, the first thing I say in my script writing lesson, sorry I'm going off now, but this is important, is that the very first thing about how to write a script or, what, or how to write is go back to George Orwell's essay, Why I Write, because that's the first thing that gets forgotten. And that's the spiritual thing. Why are you writing this? What is it that means something to you? And without an acknowledgement and an awareness, you don't need to articulate it necessarily, but you need to, it's best if you do, but you need to know why you're doing something. Because in, in, in writing a novel too, but also particularly in the hurly-burly of film production, that shit gets lost. What are the challenges when working on someone's true story of staying faithful to it when there are so many people who have a piece of this pie? And I'm wondering, does it make it easier to tell a true story in Australia than working within the Hollywood machine or at least the US? I can't speak for the Hollywood machine. I can only be, you know, like all of us, an observer, well, most of us, I guess, an observer of what we see. I'm just going to say in the old days, because I saw the assassination of Gianni Versace, which I know is, a, is a, inspired by those events. And then I saw, of course, the OJ um, eight-parter, which I thought was tremendous. I think in American television, well, in all television now, we're in what's called peak TV, where, thank fuck, the writer is God. You know, the writer is treated with a lot more respect than what she or he was back in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. You know, back when I was doing it, there was no such phrase as showrunner. So I think that there is a lot more respect. And, you know, it comes down to your relationship. When we did Lindy, we worked with, with the Seven Network, and I've done a number of things with them. We did Fire with them, and they're great. And, you know, we worked with Tim Warner, who still is running the network and he was, they all were very um, respectful of the journey of it. You know, Tim was very respectful of Lindy and telling her story and they would defer to us. And there was a moment in casting where the network wanted a particular actor to play a particular role. And this particular actor was massively big in TV. And we'd done an audition for another actor playing for the same role. And we thought that performance was better for the show, not that they were a better actor because that doesn't exist. And I rang Tim and I said, look, we want to go with X, not Z. And he said, whatever you think, Tone. And I knew that was painful for him because he could see I'm going to lose a couple of hundred thousand people in the ratings. But, you know, if it's better for the show, it's better. So I've had good experiences. Of course, that's me and those people like Tim. It's not always the case. I've equally, I've had some dreadful experiences. And in those cases, you just throw your hands up and walk away and think, life's too fucking short. I mean, if I can't honour the story of that person and if I can't be true to myself, 
Life's too fucking short, you know. I could rather just sit out the back and read, you know, Simon Sharma's book on the French Revolution. Your writing style of novels seem to be heavily informed by both your TV and, and film background. You are changing points of view, changing characters, changing narrators, uh, sorry, narrators. Every chapter has its own heading and every new scene often has a new character. Do you feel that or is it just no, an unconscious? I don't know. No, no, I'm, no, it's just a completely instinctive thing. And I know in this book and I knew it as I was writing it, that there are lots of points of view that were in fact more well there were 17 and they were all female <laughs> and i was pretty and i was working off robert altman and i you know I, i've said this many times in the past i i'm a storyteller i don't you know i'm telling a good story be it through words or be it through images that's my job so my job is to play with whatever whatever is there with me if it's chapters or points of view in words or if it's scenes or whatever that's my job so in the, with the 17 points of view, I was working off, you know, the Robert Altman films, Nashville and, and A Wedding, you know, where he kept on building up and building up and building up in different points of view. And I knew that I was taking, and it's not, readers, folks, it's not 17 points of view, okay, it's okay. Um, <laughs> I knew that I was pushing the boundaries of it, but I'm also, and I've, I learned this from, again from way back in the, back in, actually earlier, back in the Matlock Police days, where a lot of people say, oh, the audience are fuckwits. They're really stupid. Don't don't do don't do anything that's really intelligent. Yeah, you know, they're really fucking stupid. And I thought that can't be right. That can't be right. Just because people watching this again, I, this is what I say to my students. Just because people watch fucking Neighbours or EastEnders doesn't mean they're fucking stupid. You know, those shows one are really kev- cleverly crafted, and two, I can watch fucking EastEnders, and then I'll go and watch Burning, the South Korean film, which is based on a Murakami book, and I love both. So you know, fuck off and leave the snobbery at the door. So. <laughs> Uh, I'm of the belief that, you know, people can handle that sort of stuff as long as it's, you know, one of the, the most challenging things for any storyteller is to be clear, don't be repetitive, and don't confuse people. So as long as I'm ticking those boxes in whatever form I'm working in, I'm feeling it's okay. But, yeah, there are quite a few different... Uh, no, I don't think it's... I'm not consciously aware of me being a TV writer. In fact, I think the reverse is true. My novel writing has affected my screenwriting a way lot more because in screenwriting, there is a tendency not to put in a lot of stage directions. Now, I didn't adhere to that in the first place anyway because of what I was saying before. Most people read a script, they don't get it. In fact, I studied, when I was at Flinders University, I studied the simple, I learnt the simple fact that you can't communicate any more than 70%, that's the best you'll get. 70% of what you intend to communicate, that's all you'll get, if you're lucky. And so given that, with my, now with my screen, with my scripts, I write you know, a lot of stage directions and I'm constantly getting into the head of the characters. And in fact, I had a meeting with some famous actor company which they isn't one of those crazy shoot em up, you know, Jack Clancy type, Tom Clancy type of things. And he said to me, I read your script, I knew you were a novelist, and I checked you out and I saw you were. No one writes like this. But so, yeah, that's my favourite author is, you know, my, my biggest influence actually is Roberto Bellano. Uh, how so? Well, Roberto Bellano, I just fell in love with 2666 and his, the way he writes and in those long Faulkner-esque sort of sentences and the repetition. If you look, I mean, I'm, I'm conscious of it. So if you look at, i off constantly repeating phrases. You see it in the, in the first page, black and grey, black, grey and black. You know, that's a direct, that goes straight back to Bellano. So 
I'm very and all the stuff with with um, with um, Lara when she's coming out of caravans and walking across the desert and those long sentences where I grabbed him here and then he said you know he rolls over and he says let's do it and I said I don't want to do it all that sort of stuff that's for me that's I'm much more conscious of that approach. Um, I carry Bellano's twenty six sixty six with me all that time, all that time. Interesting. Not today. There's a line from Laura in the book which says, being a cop was like a series of hills. You climbed to the top of one and right in front of you was another and another and on it went. I was wondering if that describes your experience working in the creative industries because film seems to be, as you said, a, a series of you know projects that all look like they should take off and so few ever get the chance to do. Yeah, it's true. Yes, it's true. I hadn't thought of that, but it is it is true because you have to. I mean, my film company we've got fourteen different projects. I'd like to think they all get made, but they won't. I mean, I don't. I'm not going to live long enough for those to all be made. So, you are constantly, you're constantly let down. There, are, we, my business partner and I, Louise, we spent like eight months working on a massive TV show to be set in ancient Egypt. And then just as it's ready to go in the marketplace, lo and behold, you know, we find out that Netflix is doing one. So you're constantly disappointed in that respect where, you know, you're about to reach the top of the hill and then suddenly it's, you know, the ground has fallen from beneath you. But, yeah, if you want, particularly if, as a film and TV producer and particularly living in this country, you have to be very, you have to persevere, you have to be passionate and you have to be very optimistic. Uh, all of which I kind of have. So it is, yeah. Tony, every one of your chapters, as I said, starts with its own chapter title. So at this point in your life and your career, given the diversity of which you've worked with, what would be the chapter title for you right now? Rock and roll. I don't know, actually. Um, I don't know. When I finished I Am You, the movie, I had a massive collapse personally and professionally and financially um, in my life. And it was, you know, I got stranded in the... Mango Cove Resort, which I jokingly keep saying it's not a resort, and in Labrador, and you know, no matter, it was really fucked. And I vowed I would never appear on a film set ever again. I wrote Promise in that dark period over three months. I didn't pretty much do anything else. And I've come out of that with the help of a lot of friends who, who really did help me. Uh, financially and emotionally and in every which way. And when you're that fucked in your life, you're so embarrassed that you don't want to ask anyone's help. And so a lot of people reached out to me and found me and dragged me out of the hole, which I'll never forget. But, you know, now, I don't know, six or seven or eight years later, I find myself here in Sydney. It's very exciting. I've got a new film company, working with my old colleagues at Beyond, Michael Borgland, who I worked with and did... You know, Fire, Medivac, all those shows, right through to Lindy. And that's exciting. And we're in, a, as I said before, we're in a different world now. You know, back, I remember way back in the, I think in the 90s, I said to Michael, we should think about China. And he just looked at me as if I was sort of like a creature, brother from another planet. And he said, why? I said, I just got a feeling that China's, and he said, that's, I don't think so. Don't just stick with, you know, Channel 7, Channel 9, Channel 10, the ABC. So, okay. But now... One of the biggest markets in the world. Well, no, the, well, yes, it is. But the point is now I'm working with Michael and beyond and we're all working on these Chinese projects and we're all in that space. And I say to him, hey, look, you know, I'm doing a, a really low-budget musical 
kind of based a little bit on West Side Story, but not really, set in Myanmar. And it stars a, you know, a hip-hop artist who's really big over there. He thinks, okay, he's mad, but, you know, let's go. Let's do it. So I'm finding... And I've, I found that the, the, the trip into Asia, Southeast Asia, and to China was very invigorating for me as an artist. As a, I don't want to use that word because I'm not an artist. As a storyteller, because I'd written white people stories, Anglo stories, you know, way back from the very first thing I wrote, which was an episode of Special Squad or Carson's Law or whatever. So I'd written all that stuff. And to then it came directly through the Thai horror film because... You know, in a horror film, when we think of a horror film in the American or Australian sphere, you know, we our instinct is immediately to go to the bunch of teenagers who are going to who've stolen a car or whatever, and they're going to go, you know, through the bush. They're going to get completely shit faced. They're going to smoke some dope. They're going to fuck a lot, and then they go break into a house, and a baddie's going to come out and kill them all one by one. And I'm sitting there in Thailand, thinking that shit doesn't happen in Thailand because they're a Buddhist culture. So I got to work to the Buddhist culture here, which is very different, and they have a very palpable belief in ghosts. So every time a baby's born, they won't call that baby by his or her name. They'll give him a nickname just to confuse the confuse the ghosts. So all my friends in Thailand are, you know, Nit or Porn or Pecky or whatever, and so working in that sphere was really exciting and challenging. So I found that tremendously exciting. Tony, it's been an absolute joy talking to you today and I I hope you remain (laughs) ghost-free. But I really look forward to seeing what you what you're going to do next. And I know that Darian has another book to return eventually because you did promise. Mosquito Creek. Sorry, say again. Mosquito Creek. Mosquito Creek. So set up around the top end. Yeah. Fantastic, Tony. Thank you so much for making the time to come in today. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And Blood River is available in all good and evil bookstores as well as online. You can follow Tony on Twitter at TonyCavanagh1 and you can follow us at ConversationsWW. Next month, we'll be speaking with Nick Horden, co-author of World War Noir, examining the sex, drugs, alcohol, racketeering and infiltration of communist spies into Sydney during World War II. Until then, this has been James Rickards for Conversations with Writers. Thank you very much for listening.